Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome to Our Shelves, a podcast where writers from the legendary feminist publishing house Virago talk about their cultural worlds. We'll be diving into these writers' bookshelves, record collections and recollections to discover what inspires them. I'm Lucy Scholes and my guest today is Austin Channing-Brown. Austin is a speaker, writer and media producer providing inspired leadership on racial justice in America. She's the author of the best-selling memoir, I'm Still Here, Black Dignity in a World Made for Whiteness, and is the executive producer of the web series, The Next Question, a web series imagining how expansive racial justice can be. Welcome to our shelves, Austin. It's a real pleasure to have you on the podcast today. Oh, thank you for having me, Lucy. I'm so excited to talk to you about um, your book and about the questions we've got lined up for you later. But I think to kick us off, I would love to know a little bit more about how you got into the work that you're doing today. So could you tell me maybe slightly about your background and what led you to this work? What maybe led you from something, I don't know if you were doing sort of activism in your spare time and it became sort of all encompassing. Tell me about how you got to where you are today. Yeah, um, I think I'm pretty average black woman and that I've always sort of had my eye on justice, you Mm. know, when um, particularly in America, when you grow up as a a black girl, you're sort of always aware that something something is not right here. Mm. (laughs) Something is unequal here. Something is off. Um, And my first realization of that came actually when my mother told me how she named me Mm -hmm. and why my name is Austin and I'll never forget she told me um we knew me and your dad knew that if anybody saw your name but hadn't met you yet they would assume you are a white man and we wanted to make sure you could make it to the interview Mm. now Lucy I was probably I don't know eight nine so I didn't fully know what she was talking about. <laughs> what? <laughs> I'm pretty sure the only application I had filled out was maybe for the library card, you know, but that's about <laughs> it, you know? I didn't fill out an application for anything. Um, and so, um, but what what did make sense to me in that moment was that people had always had a strong reaction to my name. Okay. Um, I knew other girls who had quote unquote boys names and people would respond with, oh, that's interesting. Or, oh, that's really cool. Or, mm-hmm. right, like sort of very quick. And people would just stare at me or they would ask me again or they would try to feminize my name and make mm-hmm. it Autumn instead of Austin. Um, so I just knew, and every now and again, I would have someone who almost responded as if I was intentionally trying to deceive them or trick them. Wow. Yeah. I mean, people have very strong reactions and, and I was glad that she told me because it prepared me for people's Mm. strong reactions. Right. So all that to say, I, I knew in my bones that the world is not colorblind Mm. because people were constantly reacting to the fact that I am not in fact a white man. It clearly matters to people. (laughs) They got a black woman instead. Um, So yeah, so I think I I tease my parents all the time and tell them that 
they decided my career trajectory the day they named mm. me. It does sound a bit like that, doesn't it? I mean, how does <laughs> like it's a kind of maybe this is a strange question to ask, but does it feel sort of slightly foisted on you then that you sort of had this path ahead of you? And how does that make you? I mean, does that give you a sense of um, a sort of motivation and a sense of of what you're doing being all the more important? Or do you feel sort of like you were slightly pushed into this career path? Yeah, my parents definitely were the parents who were like, you can do anything you want to be. My my mother in particular was certain that I would be the first Black woman president, nice. regardless of my complete <laughs> disinterest in. <laughs> well, you know, it doesn't put other people off, so you should just... <laughs> Especially here in America, let me tell you, all kinds of people are running for office. Right, that um... should not be a... Your mother clearly saw the future. <laughs> That's really funny. Here's here's the whole entire truth. I when I was a kid, I really just wanted uh, an average name, what I would have considered an average name mm-hmm. that I could find in the store when there were a bunch of coffee mugs and keychains and toys that had everybody's name on it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I wanted I wanted my name on the coffee mug and the keychain and the whatever, the slapstick bracelet, like all the things that were the rage when I was a kid. Um, and so I did find that I had to grow into my name. Um, I had to grow to love it. I had to grow into figuring out what it means to be a Black woman when people are constantly reacting mm-hmm. to the disconnect, <laughs> their own disconnect between my name and who I am. Um, but I suspect that even if my name was, you know, Ashley or Elizabeth or something that I would still be pursuing justice. I think there are a lot of black women who experience the same things I experience, right? That there are black women who know that the world is not in fact colorblind and that they do have to protect themselves from whiteness, from discrimination, from racism. Um, but it's a deep knowing, right? right? It's a deep knowing. And for me, there's nothing deep about it. (laughs) It is immediate. It is apparent. It happens right away. Um, And in some ways that's helpful. I know what I'm dealing with immediately. Mm. I know who I've surprised immediately. (laughs) You know, And, and I think it has made it easier for me to talk and write about it because people's reactions are so extreme. That's fascinating. I love that sort of idea that, yes, you've had to, and I said, you know, you write about this in the book, don't you? You know, this idea of having to come to terms with what this name has meant to you, what it's na- what it means to other people and how to bridge that divide. And that's so much always on you. And that's been foisted on you from a young age, but therefore you've grown into it and it's made you into the woman you are today and, you know, doing the wonderful things that you do. So it's impressive. Yeah, I'm really grateful that it has, it's allowed me to give language to a thing that a lot of Black women and marginalized people in general feel. It's, the, it's what they sense. It's not always what they have evidence of. Right. And I suppose right? that is so important. <laughs> right. Being able and to I, recognize I that. Yeah. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes. Plenty of evidence. But I suppose I, that's something that I often don't, I wouldn't think about particularly. I wouldn't think about that idea that, you know, probably the possibility in your head you're thinking wait am I the only one seeing this is this really happening to me but actually you've got evidence day in day out and like you say you can turn that into something that's powerful and helps you for the better right exactly yeah can I ask I was very taken by the the very end of I'm still here you write about working in the dark and not knowing about you know what you're doing whether it will ever make a difference but yet you know you're doing it all the same you know whether it's speaking out at various kind of speaking engagements you do whether it was writing that book and you say a quote from the book you say enduring disappointment and then getting back to work is how you describe what you're doing which I found incredibly powerful to read But I was thinking that, you know, you wrote these words three years ago, which in one sense is hardly any time at all, obviously. But in another, we've lived through some pretty extraordinary times since then. I mean, you know, the pandemic, which has obviously disproportionately affected people of colour in the US and here in the UK. Um, And then obviously following, you know, George Floyd's murder, we've seen these worldwide protests, uh, you know, uh, um, against police brutality and this kind of surge in the Black Lives Matter movement. Um, 
And I suppose I'm very interested in in what's changed or whether anything has changed in that time. And I don't know whether you feel like there is progress being made. Do you feel like people are learning how to be better allies? Or have you found these developments really quite debilitating? Because I think another thing that, again, came to the fore in your book, which I was very grateful for, was the sort of the incredible emotional energy you have to expend on these kind of day in, day out, dealing with microaggressions in the workplace, dealing with, you know, so much that just mounts up that a lot of people wouldn't think of or white people like myself might not even think of as just happening. And to try and then in my head think about having to deal with that with also these huge global you know, events that are probably, you know, incredibly hard for all of us to deal with, but mo- much more so for you. How does it feel now? And, and you know, is it, are you full of hope? Are you full of despair? Like, you know, what's the feeling? It depends on what day it is. Okay. Sometimes, sometimes it depends <laughs> on the hour. Yeah. <laughs> you know? um, and I think, I, I think sometimes in people's quest to sort of understand what the Black community is feeling, right? Or what, um, black women are feeling um, that it can be hard for us to retain the fullness of our humanity mm. um, because people want a monolithic story, right? And 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 sometimes in a bad way, right? But not always in a bad way, right? Sometimes they just they want a simple story, right? They want a clear story, yeah, um, you know, and like anybody, our lives aren't that clear, you know? And so I'll, I'll, I'll just use just George Floyd's um, death as an example. The Black women in my life were horrified, right? That it yeah. happened at all. Um, were motivated to go out and march or to speak or to get on social media or to call or to write, but to do something, to take some sort of action. They were also intensely afraid of what this meant for the men in our lives, right? It also brings up the specific ways that Black women are, right, brutalized, Mm. are discriminated against. Um, But that's so... Um, is often missing from the story, right? Brutality, right? So there's some frustration that often our stories don't get told. Yes, you know, um, there is like um, surprise when the protests. I mean, when, even even before they went global, Lucy, the fact that they had taken place, there was at least one protest in every state was. Mm. Shocking. Because typically there's like the usual suspects, right? You're going to get a process yeah. in New York. You're going to get one in Seattle. You're going to get one in Atlanta. You're going to get, right? <laughs> you know where yeah. they're going to pop up. Um, but, but to have one in every state was very surprising. And then to witness them going global, mm-hmm. there is some sort of like, wow, maybe we are making headway here. And you also know to temper that hope because, right, right? Even though yeah. it's really exciting, you know that there's, he's not going to be the last one. George isn't going to be the last one. And he hasn't, right? Like we were, we were right. (laughs) Like police brutality didn't stop just because everybody marched, right? So it's always this conglomeration of emotions. It's always waves of emotions. It is never static. It is never one thing. It is always both and. And that is what I'm really trying to capture in that. Um, and that chapter, because uh, oftentimes, again, especially here in America, when white people want me to be hopeful, mm. right? And and I have to say, uh, if I'm hopeful, right? If if I have sort of an expectation for the way things will turn out, that hope is not rooted in white people. Yeah. Right. It's not rooted in how many white people read the book. It's not rooted in how many white people marched. It's not rooted in how many white people took the anti-racism training. Right. Because if I if I put my hope there, I will always be nothing but disappointed. Always. Yeah. What I have to root my hope in is in the work itself. Right. In the creation of the work. If I have any hope at all that is perpetual, 
right? If I have a perpetual hope, it is in knowing that Black people are always going to march. Mm-hmm. Always. If, if America never stops police brutality, what I know for sure is there is not going to come a day when Black women are like, you know what? We ain't doing this no more. <laughs> you know? Still be out there on the streets. Yeah. We're still going to be out there. We're still yeah. going to write. We're still going to tell our stories. We're still going to produce movies. We're still going to get on social media. We're still going to keep learning about our history. Mm. We're still going to keep commenting on the present. Like, like our work is, my hope is rooted in knowing that we are never going to stop. Mm. Never going to stop. But, but white people in America really want me to root my hope in them and hope that one day all white people will get it together. And that's a yeah. lot to that's to no, I know. I think also I've I felt very much when I was reading your book. I think I realized some I realized certain things like, for example, how me. I wasn't expecting you to end on a hopeful note. I, I don't know how one could after a sort of book like that to a certain degree. But at the same time, I think I became very aware that if I would had wanted you to end on a hopeful note, that's again me putting so much emphasis on you. And it's me saying, I want you to do this work. I want you to help raise yourself up because that will make me feel better about myself, won't it? And that's really unhelpful on every level because it's still me saying it's not my problem. It's someone else's problem. You know, I'm not the, I'm, I'm not the one who's doing it wrong here. I'm reading this book. I'm listening to this woman's story. Um, and ultimately what even subconsciously right that's the ultimate desire is it's not actually a question about all of america Mm. it's actually a question about the person who's asking it right Right. who want who deeply and desperately wants validation Mm. for being a good person for for the whatever work has already been done right to hand you a cookie yeah and tell you that you are a part of the solution and i am confident that your part in the solution is going to lead to utopia. You're like, I don't even know. Like, what are you? Yeah, yeah. No, but that's the, that is the sort of that's the level of the expectation, right? That it sounds mad, but that is that's like, like you know, you know, that's what that's what a lot of us, you know, white women who maybe read your book are like, oh, brilliant, you know, Austin's on it. She's going to sort it out. <laughs> right. Yeah. And I'm going to cheer her on. Yes. Yes. I'm going to help make her hopeful right. by showing that I am really great. Yeah, I I think, you know, I think I definitely needed to read a lot of stuff in this book and make me think about certain things, you know, in my own life and in the lives of people around me, um, for sure. So thank you very much for that. I, you know, I, I know it wasn't for me, but it was, I hope that I got something out of it and learned along the way. Um, now I want to ask you a few bits about um, your reading. I want to start off by asking about two books that are currently on your bedside table, please, Austin. Yeah. So one is Juliet Takes a Breath by Gabby Rivera. Um, It's about a Puerto Rican. It's about a Puerto Rican girl who comes out to her family Mm. and all the resulting (laughs) shenanigans. (laughs) Shenanigans is such a brilliant word and covers everything you need to know about a book like this, right? From what I've read about it. (laughs) she and it's it's really um it's really delightful because she comes out just before leaving her family and so she's like off on this adventure having just <laughs> revealed to her entire family who all have very different reactions okay <laughs> and so she is sort of learning about who she is and who she wants to be um right alongside her family in some ways after having come out um so it's just beautiful I haven't finished it yet it's a YA book isn't it am I correct in thinking it's YA yeah do you read a lot of YA is it a genre that you enjoy or how did this one come into your hands in particular do you know yeah that's a great question uh oh my friend Brene Brene Brown okay um posted did she post about it I think she posted about it on social media and um, one of the ways that I'm trying to practice self-care in the midst of all the chaos that mm-hmm. we've described of the last couple of years is to read more fiction. Nice. I read a ton of fiction um, when I was a kid, when I was a teenager. And right around college, that started to shift into nonfiction, mm-hmm. starting to read about 
about justice, starting to read about incarcerations, the right starting to read about these really heavy things. Yeah. And I felt strongly about my need to go back to fiction and to insert some joy into my life. <laughs> so is fiction a kind of happy is do you, you have these associations in a happy place then? Oh my goodness. It is my happy place, especially when it's centered on the story of a woman becoming herself, right? That is my favorite genre. Give it to me every time. <laughs> nice. Um, so yeah, so it's been delightful to start it and to have it on my nightstand next to me. Just a little, just a little pinch of joy on my nightstand. Sounds perfect. It's on my reading list now. Oh, yeah. <laughs> oh good. good. Yeah. Good. What's your second book? The second book is called Somebody's Daughter, and it's an advanced copy mm. um, of Ashley C. Ford's first book. And it is beautiful. Ashley C. Ford is a Black woman who does a lot of things. She's a writer. She's a podcast host. She's like, she's like your creative creative. Right? She, yeah. Um, but in it, she talks a lot about her relationship with her mother. She talks about her growing relationship with her father, who was incarcerated for most of her life. And so she, um, and then it, it moves into, you know, other areas of her life, of course, as she sort of reaches adulthood. She is what I would describe as a quirky Black girl, you know, as when you grow up as a black girl, you feel like there are certain things that you're supposed to love, right? You're supposed to love hip hop. You're supposed to be really good at dancing. You're supposed to, right? Like there's this list of things you're supposed to be great at doing. And you're sort of considered quirky if you're more like Whoopi Goldberg. Okay. You know, and you're sort of into like Star Trek and you're into skateboarding and you're into, right? Things okay. that would like be, yeah. be associated with whiteness, right? Here in America. <laughs> <laughs> and so Ashley is like what I would describe as a quirky black girl, right? Even as a teenager, she was willing ah, to step outside okay. of the sort of boundaries that would have been placed on a girl like her, a girl like us. And mm. it is, again, just really beautifully written. I sent her a message when I was heading into chapter three, I think. It was early in the book, Lucy. I sent her a message and said, Ashley... I knew this would be a beautiful book. Mm. I knew, like, I knew it. Having known your work, I knew this would be a beautiful book. What I did not expect was to have to remind myself that this is your story and not my story <laughs> because you so beautifully describe what it was like to try to make sense of the chaos wow. that's happening around you when you're a kid. And the way she does that is so clear but also so poetic. I think people are going to fall in love with this book. God, well, you know, if you're not blurbing it already, the publisher should get you to write something for the front of it because you just totally sold it to me. Like, I know you so clearly you're you know her already, but are you, and you're a fan of her work, not the writing, but other stuff that she's done already, right? And that's how you were aware of this. Correct. Yes, yes, yes. So I've never met okay. Ashley in person. Um, so it's only like a a, a, a Twitter relationship, right? the best kind. <laughs> but I have, <laughs> right? But I have followed her work for years and just fell in love with her writing. But also, I think fell in love with her mm. voice. Right? I love the way that she articulates the small things in her life. Her love for her dog, what she's cooking, um, like rom coms that she's introducing her husband to for the first time. Yeah, uh, you know, like she is just a really beautiful, open woman who also ain't gonna take no shit from nobody because she's been through some things. You know what I mean? She's not she's not quirky because she hasn't been mm. through anything, right? She's not quirky because she's been allowed to live a fantasy. Yeah, yeah. Right? She's quirky because she's determined to explore all of who she is. And it's really delightful to watch that happen. It's beautifully explained. And I love the description of falling in love with someone's voice as well. I think in the very best way, Twitter sort of allows one to do that as well, that you can become very, yeah. sort of, you recognize the way that somebody speaks and what they're going to be talking about before you've actually met them in the flesh. And then if you read their work, it's a, you know, that can be such a fulfilling relationship as well, right? Sure. Yeah. Brilliant. Um, well, two more books for my to read pile. So thank you very much for that. Adding to the list. 
add them to the shelf. <laughs> Next up, uh, I want to ask you about a recent, well, it's a recent, our question is quite broad in a sense, a recent article, podcast, film, series or song that's made you think. Um, but you're going even further than that. Tell me about the thing that's been making you think recently. Yeah, so I totally cheated. No, this is this good. Question. I love this. <laughs> I wanted, I wanted yeah. to be honest, right? I didn't want to like go find an article and be like, here's the article. Um, the truth is the person's work who I've been thinking a lot about right now, her name is Visa Butler. Mm. And she is another young Black woman whose work I saw on social media, particularly Instagram, where her work just really shines. Yeah. And um, she does these beautiful portraits of Black people that look like mixed media so so like the the pattern of their face is one thing but then the pattern on their clothes is another thing the pattern on the arm is something different there's a pattern in the background but and it all just like leaps yeah. off the page right? and when I first saw her work I thought she was painting because often you can't yeah, tell yeah. one <laughs> you know Instagram or right you you don't really know what the medium is and so it was easy to look at her work and assume that she was using painting or that she was like a graphic yes. designer who was using all these patterns and putting them yeah. together to create people. Right. And, and the truth is, Lucy, I went so long thinking this, that I actually sent her the gallery that represents her a note and said, Hey, are any of these, any of these um, prints available? Not realizing they're not prints, Lucy. <laughs> they're not prints. I love it. Right. What they are is quilting. She uses fabric in order to, and, and, and uses all these different patterns of fabric in order to create these beautiful black images. And it is stunning. It's stunning. And so I've been um, following her work, just absolutely like becoming more intrigued, right? Like the more I learn about her, the more intrigued I become. And I love it because there is something so ancestral yes. about quilting, right? That it just like really takes you back to your grandmother and your great grandmother and the days when we were all making yeah. our own clothes. You know, we were all making our own bedding. We were all making the fabrics that would adorn our lives. Um, and then I listened to her give an interview and she said that part of how she got her start was when um, either her mother or her grandmother passed away. And um, I don't, I don't I won't know Bisa's family, but if anything like the women in my life, you've got to figure out what the hell you're going to do with all right. the clothes. <laughs> there's so many clothes. I remember when my great grandmother um, had to leave her own home that she had lived in for 50 plus years um, in order to go to an assisted mm. facility. And the major fight, the major, the fight of her life, she sat in front of the closet as my grandmother took out piece by piece. Oh. And let me tell you, that woman was not playing any game. She was like, you are not getting rid of that skirt. Do you hear me? <laughs> I will fight you over that sweater. You know, like they were meaningful to her and reminded her of so many memories in her life, right? Mm. So I'm I'm imagining, right, <laughs> that women and Lisa's life were fairly similar, right? That they had pieces that they loved and now you gotta figure out what to do with all these beautiful clothes, right? And Lisa says that she kind of fell in love with the idea of the fabrics that adorned right the women in her life. And what she did was she took the remnants from the clothes um, that the women in her life had used to make clothes, and she started using those remnants to create these beautiful pieces of art. That's such a lovely story, isn't it? Lovely. Yeah. I love it so much. Um, so, yeah, I am just, I am head over heels for her. Again, have not met her in real life. <laughs> Have you seen any of her works in the flesh, as it no, were? They are okay. uh, They are at the Chicago Institute of Art right now. Yes. This is a place I used to live. So I'm kind of oh. like, ah! <laughs> It's always the way. Right? I could have hopped on the train to go see them. Um, but I live right outside Detroit and I have my fingers crossed 
that more museums, especially um, museums that cater to the Black experience, right, mm. will pick her up and start featuring her work. So fingers crossed, Lisa. <laughs> Yeah, well, I would have thought so, because I think, like you say, she's definitely having a bit of a moment. Like, I, I, I think um, when I was doing the research for this episode and, and I'd seen that you'd put her down, you know, I'd started Googling and I thought, I recognise these. I've seen these images. I think I wasn't aware of her name, I must admit. But they are. They're so incredibly alluring. The colours are so vibrant, yes. the, the sort of collage effect of them. And then, of course, the family story about, you know, the element of ancestry and the quilting. Mm-hmm. It's such a wonderful combination. And she does it with such, but they've got such a kind of life and a, and a brilliance to them, right? Yeah. I would love to see them in the flesh myself. Right? They must be it, stunning. And, and they're you know. huge. Like, the, you yeah. know what I mean? Like, they're massive. Um, yeah. So it's just, it's just stunning to me that, that something that I thought was either paint yes. or graphic designer, right? Yeah. It's actually someone cutting and sewing fabric to such a beautiful degree, mm. right? That I would have assumed it started with a pencil. That's so true because they look seamless, don't they? Yeah. They don't look yeah. like, I mean, like, you know, I know people can do wonderful things with fabric, but it looks like, like you say, that a very detailed yeah. graphic design or something has been yes. done. And actually, and I think I did read something about how long the kind of time it takes her to do that, to cut these individual bits out, oh. to sew them on. I mean, it's an incredibly time consuming process, very meticulous. You know, it's a degree of skill as well. That yes. is very, just as skillful as doing drawing or, you know, draftsmanship, right? Sure. Yeah. Beautiful. Our shells be back in just a moment. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Welcome back to Our Shelves. I'm Lucy Scholes, and I've been talking to Austin Channing Brown about uh, fabric design. And I guess we both quite like to be quilters, really. (laughs) Maybe that's what we should do with our, that's what we should have been doing with our uh, time this last over the pandemic really it's learning to quilt right my grandmother would have loved if I had learned to sew anything during the pandemic (laughs) I can't even sew a button on so I'm really not going anywhere but you know it makes me want to do it now I've been discussing um Lisa Butler's work uh next up Austin if I may could you tell me about a book that has made you think about feminism in a new way please yeah so one of the um, books that's new on the scene, you know, it's it's easy to think about um, books that are sort of the canon. Mm. Right? The Audre Lorde and Bell Hooks and, you know, so the, the, the answer to this is long. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, but one of the more recent ones that I am deeply appreciative of is called Hood Feminism by Mickey Kendall. Mm. And um, I think it's a, I think it's a very interesting approach to understanding black feminism in particular um because again here in america there are so many issues with white feminism yeah um meaning white people are really quick to attribute all of feminism to themselves and their own experience right and are more or less perfectly comfortable with leaving everybody else behind And Mickey really takes the time to talk about her own story as a Black girl who grew up in the hood and to ask very pointed questions. If feminism is about all women, how is your feminism impacting her? Does it have anything to say to her? Does anything to say about her? Does it consider her at all, right? 
or is the feminism that we're practicing really for the sweet C-suite, you know, pencil skirt, luxury bag, right? Woman. Is that really what we're talking about, right? The the access to more power, access to more money, yeah. you go girl, right? Is that is that what we're talking about with feminism? Or does our deep belief that all women should be treated equally have something to say to a little black girl in the hood, right? And I find that very compelling. I find that uh, sobering isn't the word. This is not, I'm going to make up a word. Um, I find that rooting, (laughs) right? That it, it like grounds me, Yes. right? So I am a woman who was making $20,000 before my book released. And then because of 2020 and all the crazy that we have (laughs) already alluded to, I received a royalties check that's six figures. Wow. That's a big jump, Lucy. Yeah. (laughs) And it would be really easy for me to feel like I made it and to make my feminism about other women who are just like, me now, mm. right? We have now homeowners, which I wasn't a year ago, <laughs> you know, who um, have two cars, who can afford to send my child to daycare, who can go to the fancy grocery store, who can, right? Yeah. But if my feminism doesn't have anything to say to Black women who are struggling, to Black women who are receiving an equal education, to Black women who um, are on their feet all day, right? And whatever their work, their labor is, who are not being paid well, mm. who are making minimum wage, right? Does my feminism have anything to do with them? Does my writing have anything to do with them? Or am I really not interested in feminism? I'm really interested in myself. Yes. Right? Yeah. And so between her, like that overarching question, <laughs> right, that could like really change your worldview and change your, the nature of your work, mm. she also weaves in with such confidence, story and theory. And, but she, she, she makes it earthy. Yeah. Right. She makes it fleshy. Um, you don't walk away from her being, her book thinking, now, what is the definition of, you know, right. you are very clear (laughs) about how feminism is either reaching everyone or it isn't. And um, yes, I am really enjoying sort of the modern present day language in which she is trying to get us to be rooted Mm. in our feminism instead of our feminism moving as we climb the social ladder. Right. And also it's a very different way of thinking. I feel like there has been you know, this is a bit of a generalization, but there has been a shift of recent years of a sense that feminism is about individual empowerment and individual sort of success, right? And actually what that forgets is so much around it. And you need these, you know, it's all about like, look at me doing so well in my life. And it's not about people around you. And that is so anti what we should be thinking about and what feminism should mean, right? right. Exactly. And, um, you know, here in America, I'm sorry I keep repeating this phrase, but I, I just want to be like very particular. I don't want to assume that what I'm talking mm. about is global, right? <laughs> no, 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 that's good. Um, so in America, the way like, like voting rights were rolled out in America, because it was a rollout. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> right? You were not just born here and now you have the right to vote, right? Um, was right, white men, right? And then in 1920, white women gained the right to vote. But they did so by saying that Black people and Black women absolutely should not have the right to vote. And so in America, it is always celebrated, right, the feminist suffragist victory of 1920, when women were allowed to vote. And every year, women of color have to say, no, 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 (laughs) no, 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 women were not allowed to That's vote. That's not the celebration. Women were no. not granted the right to vote. White women were granted the right to vote, right? And so the thing that is is kind of weird 
about white feminism is that it can be for other women and still have limits. Yeah. Right. It can be for women as long as they look like you and as long as they talk like you and as long as they have the same goals as you, as long as they live in the same neighborhood as you, as long as they also want to get on the boat or have the pool party or go skiing or right. Like as long as they're in your circle and you get them and you understand them, then feminism is for them. And it's a win when you win. Right. Yeah. But you're missing whole groups of women and you have to decide, do you care? Mm. Do you care? Right. And Mickey is is challenging us to care. I don't think she's asking us to care. <laughs> but I think I think Mickey is challenging our notions, right? Sort of in the same way that we're talking about hope. Yes. Right? I think that Mickey is challenging. Like you say, you say you're a feminist, you say you care about women, you say, right? But um let me tell yeah, you, she's forcing story. us to look at it. That's well, she's right. forcing, and particularly, you know, she's forcing people like me to look at ourselves and say, like, what what are you actually talking about when you're talking about right. feminism? Right. How many people are, ex- are you excluding? You know, and what what are you going to do about that? Exactly. Right? And what she does so brilliantly is uses stories. You don't feel like you're reading a book about theory, right? You don't mm. feel like you're reading an academic book with all these sources, and I got to go to the footnotes to find the original definition. You know, it's a fun. That sounds weird. I hope she doesn't mind that. But in many ways, it's a fun read because, again, she has such a distinct voice and tells such distinct stories about Mm. her life and her experience. This is a relatively recent book. I think I'm curious to wonder whether, do you think had you had this book when you were a teenager, for example, or if you come across, like what would have it meant to you at that time? Oh my gosh. Well, first of all, I think answering this question on a very personal level, I think it would have changed a lot of the way that I did racism work and anti-racism work in my early 20s. In what way? Well, I, (laughs) so I often make the confession that when I first started doing anti-racism work, I really focused on white people. Okay. To the degree, (laughs) to the degree that if I was giving a workshop, my goal by the end was to make white women cry. Okay. <laughs> I mean, you know, it's as good a goal as any. So. <laughs> and again, that was not like a conscious thought, right? <laughs> like, I'm going to go in and make these people cry, right? But it was like, I, I did deem it success if it happened. Okay. Because I thought, oh, I'm reaching you. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Oh, you're having an emotional reaction to me describing my own experience. Like, this is great, you know? Yeah, like some kind of connection has happened. But I think if I had had Mickey Kendall's book, I think I would have started asking questions about how that work is impacting me. I mm. think I would have asked questions about why I consider that success, like white women in particular crying. I think I just think I would have asked an entirely different set of questions um, had I had Mickey's book. Okay. And I also think it would have helped me. It would have given me language for the strange thing that happens when your family of origin is from the hood or still lives in the hood and you are moving into a different economic reality. And I'm not even sure I have further language for that. <laughs> but I think there's racism against Black Americans, right? And then there is racism against Black Americans who are poor, you know? Right. And you, and one, one who is Black could be susceptible to either forms of racism, right? But especially to this condescension of the poor, mm. even if that's your origin story. Okay. Well, maybe even more, especially if it's been your origin story, right? Because you, there's a lot of stuff going on there in terms of... Right. And I can't say that I ever felt that, right? That condescension. Mm. But I also didn't know how to combat it. Right. It took me a long time to find within myself and to find shared language for saying that what is happening in the hood is not inherently bad that people in the hood aren't inherently evil that you know what i mean that yeah. if you actually went there you would find 
goodness and community and things that are lacking in a lot of really beautiful mm-hmm. neighborhoods, right? But I think sometimes in America, you have to work for seeing the value beyond classism, beyond racism, beyond homophobia, beyond, right? Like beyond all of those things, mm-hmm. you have to like search for, you have to lift up the layers and ask, why am I thinking this way? Or why don't I have a response to why it makes me uncomfortable when white girls drop their phone and they're like, oh my God, my phone is so ghetto, right? Like, why does that bother me? You know, <laughs> like, why are white people using this term and should I let them? Mm. You know what I mean? So not even in like a specific sense, but sometimes just in a general sense, yeah. the ways that we use words that were once attributed only to poor Black people and now have become popular culture. You know, I I think I just would have, I would have asked better questions. It sounds like it's a very empowering, obviously it's been a very empowering read for you and it's made you able to then go forward with things in your life and think about things differently, ask questions you need to ask and that's what we need from it, right? Exactly. And that framework would have produced a confidence, Mm. right? A confidence in where I'm from, a confidence in what I'm doing, a confidence to name what I see you know, in the same yeah. way that I would if it was about me specifically. Right. Right. Yeah. No, it makes perfect sense. Perfect sense. And finally today, I would like to ask you to tell me about a woman or a person of an unrepresented gender whom you admire. Who have you picked for this, Austin? Oh my goodness. I just have the biggest crush on Roxanne Gay. I just do. I don't think you're alone there, unfortunately. But I know. <laughs> Everybody else go away. She's all yours. That's what you want. She is a writer's writer. This woman can write essays. She can write fiction. She can write comics. She can go back to essays. She can write personal memoir. Like, is there anything this woman can't do with a pen? Apparently not. I think not. No. I think not. She can do it all and beautifully and with distinct voice and with humor and charm and and I think with a real with a real grace as well there's something so something so eloquent about her work always and like you say you can always tell her voice is always there regardless of what genre she's writing in regardless of what she's trying to do with it it's always very recognizably her I think we underappreciate that sometimes in in writers yes because it's really easy to if you do rom-coms to keep doing rom-coms if you do essays to keep writing some essays if you have one memoir you might have seven you know (laughs) right because you know your voice you know you've got your your language you've got your process you've got it right Mm. it just is mind-blowing how many boundaries Roxanne has crossed and done so beautifully. Do you remember what you first, what was the first thing of hers that you read or the first thing that really jumped out at you? I assume it had to be Bad Feminist. Okay. And which makes me think the other thing. So lately, I've been thinking a lot about Roxanne's voice in terms of how extraordinarily personal it feels. Hmm. Like when I I think about hunger, I feel like I'm reading this woman's diary. I feel like like, should I be reading? Did you intend for this to be? Yeah. <laughs> no? Did you know I was going to read this? Because it is so open and it's so honest and it's so moving. It's right. It, it feels like what people save for the comforts of their own home that they only want to share with themselves in the page. And here Roxanne is giving it to us. Yeah, there's something incredibly generous about that sort of writing, I think. Yes. That you can lay yourself so bare on the page. And maybe, you know, maybe there is stuff that was, I mean, I presume there is stuff that's kept back, right? But it feels so raw and vulnerable in in, in reading it. Yes. And that kind of writing, especially if you are holding something back, is work. Mm. (laughs) You know, work to to have people feel right to write so compellingly that people are deep in their emotions right and having a strong emotional reaction Mm. and Roxanne does that so well but she does it without sacrificing 
the cultural commentary that is also vulnerable, right? And that was the brilliance of bad feminist, you know, is that she's like, you're yeah, a feminist, but I'm also yeah. going to back that thing up and maybe I shouldn't, ah! you know? <laughs> it's just so refreshingly honest, still calling us higher, right? Still saying we can do better though, right? Mm-hmm. Isn't, isn't maybe not listening to that song an acceptable sacrifice, <laughs> right? <laughs> was she someone whose work you read while you were writing your own book? I mean, uh, you know, you write memoir, obviously. You 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 have to balance that act between, you know, giving as much as you want away, but also maybe holding things back. You know, a lot of what you're talking about now are things that I can see in your own work. So was she somebody who you maybe had in mind? Or even if you, did you have people in mind while you were writing that you sort of wanted to draw on their work? I did. I, I confess I kept it limited to two um, because I felt like anything beyond that and I was going to be in trouble, <laughs> just mentally. Like, not able <laughs> too to many out. different ideas, right? Exactly. Too exactly. many different voices in your head. <laughs> right. And so I really focused, honestly, on Between the World and Me by Tanasi Coates. Yeah. Because of his economy of language, I was just like, I didn't know we could get to the point this fast, mm. you know, without losing anything. Yeah, yeah. You know, and I am a reader who will skip a paragraph, Lucy. I will. I will skip it. And I feel like <laughs> this was not, this was not a useful paragraph. Like, you know, and so to, to read a book about race in which I was like, oh no, every word is necessary. Mm. <laughs> was lovely to me. And then the other piece of work that I wanted to like marry with Coates was Ntozaki Shange's For Colored Girls Who Have Considered Suicide When the Rainbow Is Enough. Yeah. Because it is so focused on the Black girl experience. There is no if, ands, or buts about who Ntozaki was talking about, was naming, was describing, right? Mm-hmm. And so I really wanted to marry those two. I loved Coates' economy of words and his truthfulness and his bluntness. But I also knew that as a Black woman who did not grow up in the hood, I have a very distinct experience and I wanted to make that as clear as Ntozaki Shange did. Well, I for one think you absolutely achieved it. So well done. It's beautiful, beautiful work. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast today. It's been a real pleasure to have you and for sharing all your wonderful recommendations to us. Thank you, Austin. Thank you for having me. Thank you so much for listening. Our Shells is brought to you by the team at Virago Press. Special thanks to today's guest, Austin Channing-Brown, and tune in next time for more conversation about books, feminism, and culture.